0: Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be the hands and feet of Jesus, that Christ will live in and through us. And not just us in this room, not just us who are part of this church family, but through all of us as your people in this community who partner with one another to make Jesus known in word and deed. And God, we thank you for uh, the specific partners like Samaritan's Purse, that allows us to share your love literally around the world with other brothers and sisters in Christ coming together to reach out to those who may receive no other gift this Christmas but what they have in those little shoe boxes. Lord, we pray the gospel of Jesus would be clearly known through that great gift of grace among your people. Lord, we also thank you for the opportunity to partner with Georgiana for this coming week's Turkey Drive. Lord, I pray you would bless them. Lord, thank you so much for what a great partner that church is. Thank you for my buddy, Corky. Thank you for the fellowship of believers that we literally can just joke and have fun because we so deeply love each other and we like each other. And God, thank you. That that's not abnormal for us, even though it doesn't happen in every community around the world. Lord, I thank you for our partnership with Georgiana. And we pray that this community would know that there's one name that we all want to be made known. And it's not Georgiana or First Baptist, it's Jesus. Let this community see that act of love as that specific desire. Father, we also pray for the gifts that will be given through Agape Women's Center. Lord, as we partner with other organizations and ministries to reach those girls, those ladies who are served in those ministries, I pray that you would help us, Father, to faithfully come alongside those those individuals with the love and care of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that this is a church family that is truly pro-life, not just anti-abortion. That we want to share the love of Jesus to every man, woman, and child because we believe every life bears the image of our great God. So Lord, we thank you for those things. And Lord, we pray for our study today, that Lord, your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And Father, I just confess that there's a lot that's difficult to understand in this section of Daniel and in this chapter in particular. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace, help us to see what is most clear and to trust you with what we may not understand even after a time of study. And Lord, we thank you that in it all, we know Jesus is coming again. And all will be well. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. 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 If you have your Bibles, I do want to encourage you to turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, as we continue our verse-by-verse study on the book of Daniel, you'll remember maybe that last week we started the section of Daniel that is filled with prophecies related to the end of our world. That's why we call them end times Prophecies. And when you study prophecy, all of us have a natural tendency to try and figure out all of the little details. And I want you to know that's certainly a part of faithful Bible study. Those details are there for a reason. God wanted us to see and study them. However, it's really important for us to remember that we can't get so consumed with the details in prophecy that are unclear that we lose focus on the big picture that God wants us to see. So last week we resolved that as we go through these prophecies of the book of Daniel, we are going to work extra hard to make sure we don't lose focus on the big picture. And to that end of thinking in the big picture scheme of things, I want to share something about the big picture in the book of Daniel. You see, the book of Daniel is written with a very special structure. It's written with a chiastic pattern. A a chiastic is a word that comes from the Greek letter chi. It looks just like our English letter X. And a chiastic pattern then is a crossways pattern of words or concepts that are stated in one way and then immediately repeated in reverse order. So for instance, the phrase, when the going gets tough... The tough get going is in a simple chiastic pattern. And the Bible's filled with these types of patterns. For example, Jesus' words in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 are in the form of a chiasm. It says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for a Sabbath. You see there? It's a concept stated in a simple way, then repeated in reverse order. And it's all over the Bible because these patterns help us to reinforce and understand important words or concepts God's wanting to teach us, wanting us to learn. And what you need to know is that the entire book of Daniel is structured around this kind of pattern, a chiastic pattern. As a matter of fact, I'm getting ready to blow your minds. The book of Daniel is a very special chiastic pattern. It's called a double chiasm. woo I know you're all excited, right? I think it's probably easiest for me just to show it to you, and then then we'll just... Kind of process a little bit um, at a time. Check out this graph there on the, the the screens. There's the breakdown of the book of Daniel. And you can see how it makes the X of a chiasm. What you see is there on the left side of your screen. Uh, and this might be difficult for you to read with small print So this will be embedded in my notes that will be posted early this week on our website. But on the left side, you find the themes that are present in the first seven chapters of the book of Daniel. On the right side, you find the themes that are present On the last five chapters. And what you find is it's a chiastic pattern. It is stated and then restated in reverse order. And that doesn't just happen once. It happens twice. That's why it's double chiastic here in the book of Daniel. Let me zoom in a little bit closer so you can see these patterns maybe a little bit more clearly with the larger print. You'll notice there that the first seven chapters go through this particular pattern that repeats itself. Notice that chapters two and seven, chapter seven is cut off on the bottom of the screen, but both of those chapters are kingdom prophecies. If you were here during our study of chapter two, you remember uh, Daniel is interpreting a dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. And Neb's dream was about four kingdoms and how God was going to bring those kingdoms to an end and establish his eternal kingdom through Jesus. Well, chapter 7 has that exact same theme. And you might remember it from last week. This time, Daniel has a dream. His dream includes God's plan for four kingdoms, the same kingdoms that were in chapter 2. But it also tells us how God will bring those kingdoms to an end and establish an eternal kingdom through Christ Jesus. So you see that pattern is repeating itself. And what you can't see on this particular image is that that pattern is continuing over into chapter 8. Chapter 8 repeats the chiastic pattern. It's another kingdom prophecies that will really talk about how God's bringing a great kingdom into this world. The other thing I want you to notice is over there on the left side, kind of a, a tannish color. Those chapters are separated. I put that color coding there because those chapters are written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the common language of the Gentiles during the time of Daniel's life. And so God wrote those chapters in Aramaic so the people of the world, the Gentile nations, could know God's plan for the kingdoms. Even more, know the truth of how, how God is faithful to all those who trust in him and is bringing in an eternal kingdom that will bring all the kingdoms of this world to an end. On the right side, though, you see kind of that beige color, kind of grayish color. Those chapters are written in Hebrew. Hebrew is the language of the Jews. And so the same pattern or the same themes will be repeated, this time not in Aramaic, but in Hebrew. And here's why those themes are important for all people. But there's a focus that we're going to find that God is bringing to the nation of Israel in the second half of the book of Daniel. You'll see that very clearly in our study this morning. And as he does so, he's going to let us see his plan for the world, but also how it not only includes the Gentile kingdoms, but how a lot of it centers around this nation of Israel. And so this morning, this pattern, this big picture, is going to allow us to understand how some of the things we'll be talking about feel very repetitive. God did that for a reason. That's why that pattern is part of Daniel. But what we'll also see is that while we're revisiting a lot of the themes we've talked about before, we're starting to get some focus. Focus in on what God wants to do through his people, in his people, in us as his people. And so we're going, to, we're going to take a look at the big picture. we got a lot of details. Guys, I'm just going to warn you. Um, Daniel 8 has some really weird things. There's this, there's this billy goat that's a part of this, this, this vision that's really disturbing. I, I've had some dreams of my own as a result of this study. And as we look at these details, there's no other way for us to faithfully teach the Bible but to look at these details. They're here for a reason. I just want you to know... We are going to take a step back after the details and take a look at that big picture because I genuinely believe there's a word for God from God for each of us this morning in the big picture we find in Daniel chapter 8. With that said, let's look at Daniel 8 verse 1 and get started with another crazy dream. Verse 1 says this, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, After that, which appeared to me at the first, talking about the vision from last week. So he's connecting last week with this week as two visions that he had. Verse 2, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the Citadel, which is in the province of Elam. That's modern day Iran. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ule Canal. Okay, stop right there. He says, very, very very importantly, this is the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. Now, that's about 550 BC. All right, class, lock that year into your brain. Okay, 550 BC. He's telling us that for a very important reason. What it means is that Daniel is still living in Babylon, but in his vision, it says he's taken to Susa. Now, that might not mean A lot to you, but Susa was one of the royal cities of the Persian empire. If you were here during our study of Esther, you might remember she was living in the Medo-Persian empire and she was taken to live back at the king's royal palace in Susa. That's because it was a royal city of Persia. So here's Daniel. He's living in Babylon, transported in a vision to the Persian city of Susa in 550 BC. All right, let's keep reading verse three. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Okay, stop right there. When we get to verse 20, and we'll get there in just a minute, but verse 20 tells us that the ram represents the Medo-Persian empire. Its two horns represent the fact that it was two kingdoms, the kingdom of Media and Persia, that came together to form one empire. And what it says is that the second horn came up later but became more prominent. And that's exactly what happened. When you look back at history, the Medo-Persian Empire followed that to a T. Basically, the same year that Daniel has this dream, the Persian king, a man named Cyrus, Gained control of the empire of Media, and he made Persia the dominant part of the Medo Persian Empire, fulfilling this part of the prophecy. Verse 4 says the ram charged westward, northward, and southward, and that no beast could stop it. Again, when you look back at history, that's exactly what happened. The Medo Persian Empire primarily spread in those three main directions. Now remember, when is Daniel having this dream? 550 BC, while he's living in Babylon, which is west of the city of Susa, the royal city of Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire. So God is warning Daniel. He's telling him in advance. The Persians are coming. They're coming west, and they're not going to be stopped, which... We know it is exactly what happened. We actually saw that in chapter five when Daniel recorded the events around the writing on the wall. The Medo-Persian empire invaded Babylon that very night and brought it to an end. So here's what I want us to, to just see really quickly. You're already starting to find a pattern emerge as you study these details. We're reading a prophecy containing specific events that have clearly and verifiably been fulfilled. Don't miss that very clear truth. That's a theme that we'll be revisiting this morning. Look at verse 5 and let's continue on. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. I don't know about you, but goats just look evil to me. I don't know what it is. It's those little lies. I grew up in Ohio. People on farms had goats and they always freak me out and I got a little chill when I read that the first time. This goat comes across the face of the earth, but this is the reason why it really scared me. It says, without touching the ground. Just this weird floating goat. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. I had a zit like that once in junior high. This cons- <laughs> conspicuous place. It had to be picture day. Verse six, he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram. and He was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly strong But when he was strong, or seemingly at the height of his power, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, stop right here. We have this new kingdom that comes on the scene. Like we'll see later as we read these verses. Verse 21 tells us that this weird floating goat represents the kingdom of Greece. It flies across the face of the earth that conjures up images, if you're thinking about it, of an effortless movement across the face of the earth. And here's the reality, guys. When you go back in history, you find that is a great description of how the empire of Greece expanded throughout the world. That's exactly what happened. Under the leadership of Alexander the Great, Greece basically conquered the entire known world in less than a decade. Just think how crazy that is. They had to move all those troops throughout the world. They didn't have planes, they didn't have modern ships, didn't have a, 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 an ability to quickly get from one place to another, and yet they conquered almost the entire known world In less than a decade, they just floated across the face of the earth. And so this horn, this leader of this this empire is clearly Alexander the Great. He he overthrew the Medo-Persian Empire, tramples it to ground. That happened in 330 BC. What date did I tell you to lock in your brain? 550 BC, right? That's when Daniel's having this dream. This particular fulfillment takes place 220 years in advance. God clearly told his people, here's exactly what's going to happen. He even says in verse 8 that Alexander, when he was gone, he wouldn't be replaced by a single leader. His kingdom would have four leaders. And you guess what? That's exactly what happened in history. After Alexander was moved to the side, Greece was divided into four distinct parts and each part had its own ruler. It's yet another very specific event that that God said in advance and happened exactly like God said. Let's keep reading in verse nine. Out of one of them, or out of one of those four parts of the kingdom of Greece, came a little horn "...which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land." Keep that in mind. "...it grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown." And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke. For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? The transgression that makes desolate. And the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. How long is this all going to last? Verse 14, and he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. I think all of that's as clear as a bell, so I don't even need to explain any of that to you, I'm sure. Here's the reality. Greek empire split into four parts, exactly like God said. History reveals that. Verse 9 says that out of one of those divisions of the Greek empire would grow a new leader who's very powerful and it says to the south and to the east of greece now if you know the world's map you know that there's a land that's southeast of greece it includes the glorious land guys that's a description of the land of palestine or the nation of israel it was glorious because god had a temple built in jerusalem and in that temple was the place where, of all the places on earth, God most clearly and powerfully manifest his glory. God's glory was present there in Jerusalem, which made that place glorious because the presence of God was there. And before we talk more about this leader, let's, let's actually go to the explanation because God sends an angel to explain this dream. Aren't you, aren't you glad that an angel comes and explains all of this? Yeah, well, we'll just wait till you read the explanation. Verse 15 says this, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ule, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision... Is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Hey, hey can I just say this? Every time I read this, it's, it's cracking me up. Um, because we've got this end times prophecy, lots of details. God literally sends an angel to preach a message on prophecy. He gets one sentence out and his audience falls asleep. Like right there in front of him. It ain't the preacher's fault. (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) Makes me feel a lot better. He falls asleep after the first sentence of Gabriel's explanation. It says, but then he, Gabriel, touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns. These are the kings of Media and Persia. We talked about that earlier. And the goat is the king of Greece. Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, the nation of Greece, but not with his power. And that's what we find in history. No one ever attained to the power of Alexander again. Verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great. Now notice this phrase, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great without warning. He shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken But by no human hand, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision or keep it, protect it, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel, we know how you feel, bro. Even after Gabriel's great explanation, this is hard to understand. And if you feel that way, it's okay. I just want to encourage you. It's okay if you walk away and you've got the expert sitting at lunch with you who knows everything about end times prophecy and you feel a little less informed than him. You're in Daniel's camp, not the other. That's okay. What I want us to do is just go back and let's see what we can understand. What is clear that is being told to us here? Here's what we do see. We see that a world leader is now introduced in verse 9. And that world leader is going to be from Greece, from the emergence of Alexander's kingdoms. He will exercise his great power against the nation of Israel, the glorious land. Verse 10 says that in that process, he's going to throw down what's called some of the stars And he'll trample on them. But when we get to Gabriel's explanation, verse 24 says, he's going to cause fearful destruction and will destroy many mighty men and people who are the saints. And so there it connects that the saints represent the people of God who are destroyed by this particular ruler. Verse 11 says that he'll have power over the burnt offering and the place of God's sanctuary. Remember, we talked about the temple. This is clearly a reference to the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 23 actually tells us that these events will then occur near the end of that empire, those kingdoms. And I take that to mean the Greek empire. So when did the Greek empire come to an end? I'm sure you all know this offhand, but I'll tell you if you don't. 146 BC, you find Rome overtaking Greece. Okay, so the question we should ask, is there anyone in the history of the world who's near that point in time, because it says near the end of that kingdom, that fits this description? And here's what you need to know, absolutely, 100%. There was a Greek ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. He began to rule in 175 B.C., just about 30 years before the end of the Greek Empire. And he actually fits every one of these descriptions perfectly. He exercised power over the nation of Israel. History actually tells us that he persecuted faithful Jews who were not willing to conform to his godless rules. As a matter of fact, one historical account says that in his invasion and persecution of Israel, he had 80,000 men, women, and children. Put to death. He's fitting this description. Verses 11 and 25 say he would try and make himself look as good as God. Well, the name Antiochus Epiphanes is a name that he chose for himself. It means the illustrious one. And he even had coins that were printed with his image on them. And underneath his image was this phrase, "Theos Epiphanes. That means manifestation of God. So yeah, I think he had a high view of himself. So he's a guy who starts to try and make himself look like the manifestation of God here on earth. Even more, Antiochus Epiphanes set up worship inside the temple of God in Jerusalem. He stopped the daily sacrifices of the Jewish people, just like verse 11 said he would. He even brought a statue of Zeus into the most holy place in the temple. He even went to the point, and if you know anything about the the nature, the culture, the law of the Jews, he even went to the point of sacrificing pigs on the altar of God just to be offensive to God. He trampled The holy place and the truth about God under his feet, exactly like this prophecy said. In verse 13, we find that Daniel hears two voices that are in a conversation. And the first voice asks, hey, how long will this part of the vision last that concerns burnt offerings, the persecution of people in Israel, and the defiance of God specifically in worship. And the other voice answers back, it's going to last 2,300 evenings and mornings. I'll do the math for you. That's just over six years and four months. Now, let me ask you this. Do you know how long Antiochus Epiphanes terrorized Jerusalem and defiled the temple? It started early in the fall of 170 B.C. when he had a high priest of God killed. He'd likely stopped sacrifice sometime before that, but has that high priest killed in the fall of 170 B.C. But by December of 164 B.C., Antiochus had been removed and Judas Maccabeus cleansed and rededicated the temple. So that's early fall, 170 BC, December, 164 BC. Do you know how long that is? Six years, four months. And when is Daniel having this vision? 550 BC. That's nearly 400 years before these events would take place. God is saying, here's exactly what's going to take place. Place Church, this is an amazing illustration of the Bible's inspiration by God and perfect inerrancy in every single way. God tells Daniel what's going to happen 400 years in advance. And more clearly than our media can tell us what happened yesterday, it comes true down to the perfect detail. You know why? The word of God is perfect, and preserved without error. And here we have ironclad example after example. Before we meditate on that reality, I do want to show you one more thing. Back in verse 17, we see this. The angel says to Daniel, understand this, oh man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Okay, the vision is for the time of the end. Now, the meaning of that phrase, I want you to know, is debated by biblical scholars. There are some scholars who say that simply means the time of the end of the kingdoms of Greece. And they point to a couple details, and I want you to know, I definitely believe that is a possibility. I don't think that's an unfaithful interpretation of that phrase. But the phrase, time of the end, can just as rightly, and I believe more naturally, designate the time of the end, the end of time. That's what I take him to mean. And when you look through this passage through the lens of the end of time, what you find is that Antiochus Epiphanes serves at the very least as a type or a foreshadowing of another world leader that the Bible says will emerge before the end of time. We talked about him last week. He's referred to as the man of lawlessness or the antichrist, and he perfectly matches the description of the leader in this passage. Chapter 8, verse 9, we read it. This leader is described as a little horn from his beginning. Well, that's exactly what the Antichrist is described as in chapter 7, verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 24, this leader is said to have great power that does not come from himself. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 says the Antichrist is, is like this. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan... With all power and false signs and wonders. In other words, a world leader will emerge who is filled and enabled by the power of Satan himself. Chapter eight verse twenty-four says the leader will persecute the saints and kill many of them. In Revelation thirteen four and verse seven. We're told the Antichrist makes war and kills the saints. He seeks to kill anyone who will not worship him. We find many other details, and we could go on and on, like the fact that this leader is destroyed without any human hand, and we find in the New Testament that the Antichrist is killed by the breath that emerges from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Jesus will defeat the enemy, and he won't need our help. All right, You see this being a perfect description. Description of what God is going to do at the very end of times. All of those pieces match. So at the very least, what we're seeing here is we're seeing a foreshadowing or a type of the Antichrist. And here's what it seems like God is doing. As you connect that, not only to world history that's already occurred, but world history that is coming, the events of the end times that we've been studying over the last two weeks, it seems as if God is giving us Ironclad evidence that just like we can look back and see that the prophecies about Antiochus Epiphanes and Greece and Medo Persia and the Babylonian Empire, just like all of those prophecies were fulfilled down to the smallest minute detail, the same thing will be true about the Antichrist, about the second coming of Jesus about the kingdom work of God and his plan for all the saints. And here's the the moment where we need to step back from the details and remember what we said we were going to do with great diligence. Look at the big picture. Remember last week in chapter 7, we got the big picture view of the end of the world. When all is said and done, we saw last week, Jesus will return To receive glory as he gains victory over Satan and sin and the kingdoms of darkness. And he will share his glorious kingdom with everyone who will place their faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior. That's the big picture prophecy that we saw last week. And then in the very next chapter... He gives us prophecy that's not just big picture. It's all of these little, specific details that are perfectly fulfilled in every single way. Nothing is overlooked. God made all of this come about. Do you realize what's happening between these two chapters, church? God is being so kind. He wants you, He wants me. He wants us to know exactly what is going to happen even more. He wants us to know that he knows exactly what is going to happen. And he wants us to know that he knows exactly what's going to happen. And it's all a part of his good plan to bring glory to Jesus and good to us. And church, that's our big idea for this morning. God perfectly knows our future and has a perfect plan for his glory and our good. Guys, isn't that amazing news for us this week? We have another election cycle behind us with a lot of crazy thrown in. We have a hurricane that pops up out of the middle of nowhere and it just so happens that here we are in this passage of Scripture being reminded of this truth. God knows exactly what will happen, and it's all a part of His plan for His glory and our good. And before we end our study this morning, I just want to share with you two ways I believe we should respond to the truth we've seen. First, we need to respond by renewing our confidence in God's ways. Church, God has a perfect plan. It's perfect and it's still on track. And it includes every details of this world's events and every detail of our lives, including our pain and our suffering, including the things that we would never choose. Think of what we just read will take place. The temple of God was overthrown. The people of God were persecuted. They were even killed. Things that were painful and hard and we would never choose. We're all a part somehow of God's glorious, perfect plan. Church, he knows your future. He knows our future. And he has a perfect plan for his glory and our good. His ways are always best, so it's best when we're confident in all of his ways. Let me just ask you this. What thing is part of your life, what thing is part of your world that completely has caught you off guard? You didn't see it coming. What news have you heard? What situation have you encountered that made your heart sink when you heard it or made the floor drop out from underneath you? I know I look around this room and I see story after story over the last few weeks of people who would say, I got a call, I got news, I heard this thing, I encountered this event, I ran in to this moment and I never saw it coming and it hit me so hard. It was like the world fell out from underneath my feet. I know that's true about you. We've had those conversations. Can I just tell you something about those? They did not catch God off guard at all. He perfectly knew. He perfectly knew that those things would be a part of your life. And it is part of his perfect plan that will bring glory to his name and good to you. His ways are right and good and he's calling us today to trust his purposes even when we don't understand his plan. Just think with me how differently your life would be today, how differently you would feel walking through the difficult things of your life if deep down in your heart With the ears of faith. You could hear your good father say. Every time you got a call. You wished you hadn't gotten. Every time there was the turn. For the worse. That you never would have chosen. If your heart by faith. Could hear the voice of your God and father. Saying child. I knew. This was coming. I'm not surprised. Even though you are. And you need to know. I've got a plan. It's a perfect plan. This didn't mess it up. It will show. In the end, it will show you how glorious I am. And I promise you, you can't imagine it now, but I promise you, it will bring you good. Can you imagine how different our life would be if we didn't dread the next call as though we were being called into the cosmic principal's office? But we have a good and glorious father who says, I know that's coming. And it doesn't derail my plan one bit. Church, may we leave this place. And may we live in this condition that we have unwavering confidence in our sovereign and good, glorious God. He knows and He has a plan and His plan is not derailed at all. It's perfect and it will bring Him glory and it will bring you good. We should renew our confidence in God's ways. And number two, we should renew our commitment to God's word. God's word is perfectly true, completely dependable. We see that. As you look at these prophecies, I know I mentioned that a moment ago, but when you look at the details hundreds of years in advance that could not be an accident, they are not a good guess. They are a perfect prophetic word from Almighty God. We have without a doubt, the evidence we need to see that the Bible is the holy word of God, inspired and inerrant and authoritative for all of our life. It's the word of God. And I want you to notice even that in the prophecy that shows us that, God chooses to reveal an interesting strategy that will be employed... By the godless leader who will emerge in our text. Verse 12 says he will throw truth to the ground. Verse 25 says by his cunning he will make deceit prosper under his hand. That matches up with what God warns us about. It's going to happen when Jesus comes again or before Christ returns. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, and with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Before Jesus comes again, church, the spirit of Antichrist will lead the people of this world to more and more fully reject the truth. Or as Daniel puts it, the days are coming when truth will be thrown to the ground. Does that sound familiar? That is precisely what is happening in nearly every facet of our world today. We are seeing a wholesale rejection of the truth. Let me give you an example. Following this week's election, the Washington Post ran this headline. Abortion rights advocates score major midterm victories across U.S. Here's why they said that. From California to Vermont, multiple states in between, People in our nation voted to enshrine abortion into their laws. In Vermont, they changed their state's constitution to now guarantee a right to abortion without any restriction noted. Means through all nine months of pregnancy up to the date of birth, an abortion can be performed. It also removes the right of conscience that medical. Workers would have to abo- oppose abortion. That means they can lose their jobs if they believe, like the Bible teaches, that life begins at conception, which means that is a child, a human made in the image of God, which means to willfully end their life is murder. They can lose their job. It also removes parental rights for minors concerning their sexual and gender related decisions. Guys, here's what's happening codified into our laws in our nation. The truth of God's word is being thrown to the ground in our nation. And it is one thing for us to lament that as we look out at our world in general. But I can't help but ask, what about each one of our lives? Are you holding the word of God, the Bible, As though it's precious. As though it is a treasure to your life. Do you live day in and day out as though the Bible is the word of God that you treasure in your life? How are you determining the best way for you to live? For you to raise your children. For you to engage in your marriage. For you to work at your job. For you to live in a dark and difficult world. How are you gauging what is the best Practice for your life? Is it adopting the best practices of our world? Or are you daily looking to God's word as though it is truly the word of God, inerrant, inspired, and fully authoritative to your life? The application for us this morning, guys, is that we would resist the trend that will accompany the emergence of the antichrist into this world. By renewing our commitment to the Bible as the holy Word of God. By living our lives, not just cursing at our culture. Living our lives as though the Word of God is a treasure that we would hide in our hearts and we would make the foundation of every decision. Guys, may we be renewed in our commitment to the Bible as the perfect word of God. And if you're wondering as a visitor why we would preach Daniel 8 about a weird floating goat, I'll tell you why. Because we believe that all of the Bible is the holy word of God. And so we don't skip the hard passages. We don't skip the hard passages and we don't ignore the hard subjects, even when they hit really close to home by God's grace. And with that in mind, I pray that we'll remember that the holy word of God actually reveals that the pinnacle of truth revealed in the Bible is the good news about Jesus, the greatest display in the history of our world that God has a perfect plan to bring glory to Christ and good to us. You see, the history's really clear. Jesus Christ, the son of God, came to this earth to be a perfect, sinless man in our place. And he didn't just live in our place. He died in our place. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. He was unjustly crucified by a Roman mob on a Roman cross. But the murder of his dear son did not catch God off guard. He knew it was coming and he had a perfect plan. Because while Jesus was hanging on the cross, the sin of this world, the Bible says, was placed on the cross of Christ so that as Jesus died His sin could be a or his death could be a sacrifice for our sin, and we would have a way as we trust in him to be perfectly forgiven and restored to God. Guys, God's grace to us and Jesus allows us to be sons and daughters of God, adopted into a brand new family, so that we can be a part of His perfect plan, of His eternal kingdom, of His glorious future for all of his people. So if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, today is your day. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that heaven is your home and that come what may on this earth, as hard as life might be, your future is filled with Christ's glory and your good because of the work of Jesus Starting at the beginning of the foundation of the world and carrying on till Jesus comes again. So are you trusting in Jesus? He has a perfect plan for his glory and your good that we enter into by faith and trust in him. Church, would you bow your heads? Let's close our eyes and make our prayer. For those of you who've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus our pastors will be down front. We would love to pray with you at the end of this service. We have prayer partners standing by that would love to pray with you at the end of this service. But even now, don't wait till then. Call on Jesus. Trust in his work on the cross and his glorious resurrection to provide forgiveness of your sin. Claim the promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, believing that God has raised him from the dead, will be saved. Call on Jesus to save you. For those of you who would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. What part of your life has caught you off guard this week, this season? How are you struggling to put the pieces together? What difference would it make if you truly believed that God perfectly knew that would take place and has a perfect plan for his glory and your good, would you trust him today? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that even really hard and complicated passages by the power of your spirit are as relevant for our life today as anything else we could ever imagine. And we thank you that your word is your word. It's clear and authoritative over our lives as we trust in you. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us, the people of God who are First Baptist Merritt Island, to renew our confidence in your ways, to renew our commitment to your word, to trust fully and completely in Jesus until Jesus comes again. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name.